Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go before the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. This is not the word of men about you, but it is your revelation breathed out by God the Holy Spirit through the writers of Scripture, guiding them and directing them so that what they wrote was without error and that we can trust it implicitly because it is in your word that we know truth and in your word we have life and we understand what life really is. Now, Father, as we study... Our topic this morning as we continue in our study on future things in the book of Revelation, we pray that we might recognize that this not only has to deal with your plan in the future, but there are principles that are embedded within these verses that we're studying that apply to each of us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, and we are in our study of the sixth seal judgment, beginning in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Now, when we talk about the doctrine of judgment in Scripture, there are many people who think that uh, somehow the Bible is all about judgment and God is a negative God, especially that old nasty, wrathful God of the Old Testament. But when you study the Old Testament objectively, you realize that throughout the Old Testament, what is being taught are doctrines that always go together in tandem. One is the doctrine of grace, and the other is the doctrine of judgment. Another way we might put it is a doctrine of salvation and judgment. For whenever God saves, there is also judgment. There is salvation at the Garden of Eden, but there is also judgment. There is salvation with the Noahic flood, but there was also judgment. There is salvation as God redeemed the nation Israel from uh, slavery in Egypt, but there was also judgment upon those who had rejected God and were disobedient to him. The tribulation period is a time of divine judgment. As we've studied, this is the time when God is bringing to a conclusion his judgments in human history, and it is a time when the Lord Jesus Christ is taking the 
uh, the scroll that has been given to him that is in effect the title deed of the earth, and he is bringing to conclusion uh, human history in order to establish his kingdom upon the earth. So therefore, it is a time of, of cleansing, a time of discipline for sin and rebellion in the human race. But it is not just about that. The book of Revelation is a book that explains the magnificent grace of God. And as we've studied in previous lessons, we see a tremendous display of God's grace throughout the tribulation period. It's not just a time of horrific judgments and cataclysms that take place. And it's not just a time of, of incredible, unimaginable suffering for many members of the human race, but it is a time that we see that that uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, will trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Scripture says in chapter 7 of Revelation that the number of martyrs are without number. And as we've seen in the past, uh, the Apostle John uses many large numbers in the book of Revelation. And so to say that the number of martyrs is without number impresses us with the large number of people that are saved uh, throughout this, this particular period. We see a hint of that as we come to the end of the chapter, of chapter 6, as it opens the door for the seventh chapter, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to go back this morning and look at what happens during this sixth seal judgment. During the last few weeks, we focused on the response of the earth dwellers, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, all of the, the rich as well as the poor, the workers, everyone that has hardened their heart against the revelation of God. And the basic doctrine that I have taught the last few weeks is focused on the fact that when God's word comes, when God speaks, it demands a response from us. And people either respond in negative volition and harden their heart, or they respond positively. Those who are called earth dwellers in the book of Revelation are those that never do respond positively, it's not simply that they live on the earth, but it is that they are restricted in their thinking to that which is simply temporal, that which is restricted to the creation, and they are never willing to submit to the authority of God as the sovereign creator God of the universe. So this morning I want to focus on these judgments that take place, these horrendous judgments that take place and, and uh, the sixth seal judgment. Now, to give you context, we've seen that in uh, the period of the, tri of the tribulation, there are three series of judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then the bowl judgments. The tribulation itself takes place after the church has been raptured. All believers in the church age dead and alive, are taken to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in the air, according to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 12 and following. The Lord descends in the air with a shout, and we, the dead in Christ, rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So that's the rapture of the church. There is an unspecified transition period following the rapture of the church between that event and the time that the uh, Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, this is what initiates Daniel's 70th week according to Daniel chapter 9. It is that period known as Daniel's 70th week, a seven-year period, not a seven-day period, but a seven-year period, which is known as the Great Tribulation. 
So we have the uh, first part of the tribulation, the first half, and in the first 21 months of the tribulation, we see these seal judgments as they've been described in the earlier verses of chapter 6. There are the first four judgments described as four horses that go forth. There is the first horseman that brings conquest. This is not violent conquest. It is done through... uh, it is done through perhaps diplomacy or intimidation. Then there is the second seal judgment, which is the judgment of open war and violence. Then we have the third seal judgment, which is famine, and the fourth seal judgment, which is death. And each of these follows upon another. And as I pointed out when we studied these, is that God often uses the normal consequences, circumstances in life to bring discipline and to bring judgment. But uh, after the fourth judgment, we see more of God's direct involvement in the judgment. There is a fifth seal judgment of martyrdom, and we see a tremendous number of believers who are martyred. And then when we get to this sixth judgment, the wrath of the Lamb, the physical disturbances, the uh, disturbances that take place uh, in the stars and in the heavens, this is when we see God ramping up the judgment on earth and earth dwellers begin to realize that this isn't just uh, the result of natural consequences, that it is God himself who is bringing judgment upon them and their reaction is described in verses 16 and 17. In summary, we have seen that the sixth seal judgment is described in terms of a great earthquake. The sun is turned black as sackcloth. Uh, the moon turns to red like blood. Stars fall to the earth. The sky is split like a scroll. And then mountains and islands are moved out of their place. This is not simply hyperbolic language. This is language of sure that it uses uh, imagery and figures of speech, but it is expressing the uh, harshness, the extremities of these judgments. Nothing like this has ever been seen in human history. We've seen earthquakes. We've seen volcanic eruptions that have uh, spewed forth enormous amounts of volcanic ash and dust into the air that have uh, caused the sun to be Uh, blotted out a little bit and caused other meteorological consequences. We have seen uh, meteor showers and had uh, comets and uh, asteroids fall to the earth. We've seen different things like this, but nothing to the degree that will take place during the sixth seal judgment. As we begin this, let's just look briefly at these uh, first uh, three verses to understand the dynamics of this judgment. Revelation 6:12 we read I looked uh, when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And then in verse 14 the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island uh, were moved out of their places. Now, what we see here in these three verses is a summation of five 
unprecedented disasters, and they are viewed as one event. Now, I don't know that if they all happen within a very short amount of time, such as uh, whether it's simultaneously or whether it's covered in a day or two, but it is such that they are all linked together. But there are five parts or five components, five cataclysms related to this sixth seal judgment. The first is an enormous earthquake. This is a worldwide in scope earthquake. It is not just something that happens locally in one area, but something that affects the entire earth. There is the effect of that earthquake, and many times when there are earthquakes, when there are these uh, shifts in the earth's surface, earthquakes are uh, also associated with volcanic eruptions. Uh, doesn't state anything about volcanic eruptions, but the second uh, effect of the, the second verse here describes the darkening of the sun and the moon turning to red. This describes an effect that is what we see when there have been volcanic eruptions, so that from the Earth's perspective, the sun's darkened, uh, its light is dimmed dramatically, and the moon uh, turns red and looks like blood. There is an enormous meteor shower. We see these movies that are turned out by Hollywood today that often uh, picture some sort of cataclysm of an asteroid or comet headed to the Earth, and if somebody doesn't do something, if Bruce Willis doesn't come on the scene, then we'll never survive. (laughs) But what we see here is going to be beyond the imagination of even Hollywood. Fourth, there is some sort of explosion, some sort of event that occurs in the upper atmosphere so that this brilliant light that looks as if the atmosphere itself is being split apart occurs. We don't know exactly what cut, what causes that, but it is described graphically by the Apostle John. And then at the close, there is this worldwide earthquake that is either the same as the first one, or it could be that this earth quaking and movement goes throughout this same period. It's not clear, but it is obvious that the first thing mentioned is an earthquake. The last thing mentioned relates to the earth moving in, a, in an unprecedented manner. And so the overall effect is of a disaster that we cannot imagine. And we, we look at this, and we think about what is described here, and we think, well, this must be the end. But this isn't the end. This is only the beginning of the tribulation period. We're just in the first uh, 18 months or so, probably, maybe close to that uh, 20th month, somewhere in there. We're not yet into the mid part of the tribulation. We're not into the uh, end of the tribulation. We still have the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments to come. But what we see in these judgments is a pattern of divine judgment that has taken place throughout history. Not only divine judgment, but when God appears, he often, uh, is a, the appearance of God is often accompanied by earthquakes. We see this throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, when God appeared on Mount Sinai to Moses to give him the Mosaic law, the, there, an earthquake occurred. The earth shook, according to Exodus 19.8, 
and Psalm 68, 8, so that God's presence in his creation is such that it results in certain geophysical uh, consequences. Uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, when he calls down fire from God, when he is uh, arguing and fighting against the priests of Baal and taunts them all day long with... uh, fact that they can't get Baal, the god of lightning, to bring lightning down from heaven on, uh, on the sacrifice when God brings fire from heaven and uh, just uh, destroys the sacrifice. It's just that fire that comes from heaven uh, just incinerates everything. It just licks up all of the uh, sacrifices, the wood, the stone, the water, everything is vaporized. And There is also an earthquake at that time. At the crucifixion of Christ, there's an earthquake, and Matthew tells us that at the same time the graves opened, and out from the graves came certain believers who had died who go about, walk about uh, in a a body that is still mortal, but they walk about Jerusalem and they give testimony to what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Fourth, we see that when Jesus, Paul and Silas are miraculously released by God from jail in Philippi. There is an earthquake at that time as well. So when God works in history, that work is often uh, associated with some sort of shaking of the earth. When we come to the end of history, in the tribulation period, it also is marked by earthquakes. And there are four major earthquakes during the tribulation period. And we have to distinguish these and relate them also to Old Testament passages that predict uh, the earthquakes, the darkening of the sun, the darkening of the moon that occur at the time of the great day of the Lord, a term that uh, we haven't discussed in great detail, but it primarily relates to that culmination of judgment, the culmination of the tribulation period when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So we have to make sure we distinguish these events. They're not all the same events. So the first earthquake that's mentioned in the tribulation period is in the sixth seal judgment in our passage this morning. The second earthquake that is mentioned occurs at the beginning of the trumpet judgment. Now there's a lull between the sixth seal judgment And the seventh seal judgment, when the seventh seal judgment is opened, it reveals seven trumpet judgments. And it's at the end of that lull between the sixth seal judgment and the beginning of the trumpet judgments that we have another great earthquake. And then third, we see that in Jerusalem, just about the midpoint of the tribulation, just before that, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgment. Remember, the seventh trumpet judgment contains seven bowl judgments. So that covers the last half of the tribulation period. So it's just about that midpoint of the tribulation there will be this incredible earthquake in Jerusalem. 7,000 are killed, and then we're told all of the rest give glory to the God of heaven. And that verse is a clear indication that it's at that point that you have the vast majority of the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Jews that are living there who to that point still have not responded to the uh, 
witness of the 144,000 that we'll get into in Revelation chapter 7. They have yet to respond to the testimony of the two prophets that appear on the scene during the first part of the tribulation, but it is with that earthquake which immediately follows the uh, martyrdom of those two witnesses, and then after three days their bodies are they're, they're resurrected, and they, are, they bodily ascend to heaven. And then there's this great earthquake, and it's in conjunction with that that you have a tremendous number of Jews that will turn and recognize that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament and that he is the one that he claimed to be. And this will prepare them as the Antichrist then Following that will desecrate the temple. They will see that. They will follow the commands of the Lord to leave Jerusalem immediately. They will head south and east, south through the Judean wilderness, east across the uh, Jordan River into the barren wilderness, uh, south of modern uh, the ruins of Petra and the area known as Basra also in the Old Testament. And there, uh, at the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ will return and will uh, bring them as a victorious army back into the land, back to Jerusalem. So there's this tremendous earthquake in Jerusalem in Revelation 11:13, And then at the end of the tribulation period, there is another large earthquake that will split Babylon into three parts. This is described in Revelation 16, 18 through 19, Babylon being the economic center of the kingdom of the Antichrist, during the tribulation period. Now, these are all distinct earthquakes, but they're not the same as we must distinguish 2, 3, and 4 from number 1. Number 1 takes place in the early part of the tribulation period, and this is described and prophesied by the Lord in his statement in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 24. Excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. In um, we must distinguish these from that final earthquake that comes at the end that's described in Matthew 24:29, as well as Joel 2 and other passages that relate to the uh, earthquake at the end of the tribulation period. Matthew 24:29 is in the end period of his prophetic discourse in Matthew 24. And the Lord said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall. See, this is similar to the sixth seal judgment, but it's not the same. The sixth seal judgment is mild compared to this final judgment that is spoken of as what happens at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, Joel, in Joel 2 and in Joel 3, describes this same kind of event with the earthquakes in Joel chapter 2, Verses 9 and 10, verse 10 says, The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, sun and moon grow dark, the stars diminish their brightness. In Joel 2, 30 and 31, uh, God says, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. These depict the final judgment. So we have to distinguish these subsequent uh, judgments from the first one, which is in the sixth seal judgment. Joel 3.15 is another verse that describes the darkening of the sun and moon at the end of the tribulation period. Now, it is in the midst of these horrendous events that 
the human race is confronted with the fact that these things that are taking place from the wars, the famines, the disease, all of these things that have been uh, coming about the last several months at this particular time are not from just natural consequences. They're not the result of, of man's use of combustible engines and destruction of the, uh, of, of the climate and destruction of the planet. It's not because uh, somebody's failed to save the planet. It is because God is directly intervening in human history to bring judgment. But that purpose of that judgment has a grace aspect to it because in that judgment, God is also uh, revealing himself and revealing his grace so that there will be those that still have time to respond to the gracious offer of salvation. And there are passages in the Old Testament that indicate the importance of people responding in fear at times of judgment. We should recognize the validity of that, that there are times when God has to scare people into trusting Christ. It's not just the offer of the carrot, but there also has to be the stick as well. In Luke chapter 12, verse 5, we read, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is, man should fear the judgment of God in history that that is coming. The writer of Hebrews relates this same principle in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, there will be two responses to these judgments in the tribulation period. They will all have fear, but for some, that fear will simply be an occasion to harden them further against God, resisting him. These are the earth dwellers. Then there are those who will respond by trusting in Jesus Christ. Some of those will be martyred, but there will be many more who will survive even this horrible time of the tribulation, and they will go in to the millennial kingdom. Now, the first thing that happens that we see described is in uh, verse 12, and that is this, great earthquake that takes place. Uh, for the first time in history, there is going to be this earthquake that shakes the world, not just Southern California, not just Mexico, not just China, but one that uh, actually reverberates throughout the entire earth. We know from geology that the earth's crust is covered with a complex network of faults, that there are various uh, uh, geological plates on the Earth's surface, and when these move or shift against each other, that that produces an earthquake. At that same time, as these these fault lines rub against each other, sometimes they break open, and magma can come out from the Earth's surface, producing volcanoes. You don't always have volcanoes associated with earthquakes, but many times in history, the two do go together. And so it seems with this worldwide earthquake, as the massive uh, shifts take place on the Pacific Rim and in China and in Europe and Africa, that what takes place is also volcanic eruptions that will throw an enormous amount 
of dust and ash into the atmosphere. Uh, this will make explosions such as Krakatoa uh, pale in comparisons. And the result of this is the second aspect of the judgment, and that is the darkening of the sun and the reddening of the moon. And this is described from uh, human perspective. This is the Bible's use of phenomenological language. This isn't language of uh, the, a scientific language. It's language that we use every day to describe things. People talk about the sun rising and the sun setting, but we all know that it's the earth that uh, rotates on its axis and that the sun doesn't actually rise and the moon doesn't actually set, but we speak of it that way because that's what it appears to be from our perspective. And so that's what we see here is that uh, from John's perspective on the earth, it will appear as if the sun is darkened. But actually, the moon, which reflects light from the sun, shows that the path of light from the sun to the moon is not hindered. It is simply something in the atmosphere of the earth that is causing the sun to appear darkened and the moon to appear, uh, to appear red. But it is something that is far beyond anything ever experienced in history. We, we know stories and we know about uh, primitive peoples in the past who didn't know how to explain uh, the full eclipse of the sun, and they would attribute it to some uh, god or goddess uh, devouring the sun, and then there would be some kind of victory or recovery, and lots of different uh, pre-scientific explanations of what would occur during a full eclipse. So this is going to be much, much worse. It's going to have consequences related to agriculture. It's going to have consequences related to uh, life on the earth and health and many different facets of, of implications from this particular, uh, this particular judgment. And then at the same time, there's going to be uh, an astronomical component. This is the third element mentioned in the judgment. The stars of heaven will fall to earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. What a picturesque image that is used uh, by the Apostle John. The word here that is used for stars is the Greek word asteris, from which we get our word asteroid. Stars are used a variety of different ways in the Scripture. Sometimes they refer to the actual uh, luminescent bodies in the heavens, but often the word, the word star refers to something uh, else. The word star frequently describes angels in the Scripture. Jesus Christ is called the morning star in Revelation 2.27 and in Revelation 22.16. But here we have a picture not of stars because if a literal star were to fall to the earth that it would incinerate the planet long before it got here. This is a picture of asteroids or comets that are falling to the earth and impacting all of the earth. Uh, every area of the earth is going to be impacted. And I think when you combine the devastating consequences of these earthquakes and the shift of the earth's crust, the tectonic shift that takes place, plus the damage that is done from these uh, comets or asteroids, I believe that pr the modern technology of man is going to pr be pretty much wiped out. 
Now, the reason that's important is when we get into certain Old Testament passages that describe the warfare during the tribulation period, and they talk about horses, and they talk about spears, and they talk about bows and arrows. There are many people who have tried to explain that as uh, just the ancient world's uh, inability or lack of vocabulary to describe modern, modern weapons. But it would seem to me that in these, in understanding these kinds of judgments, that electrical grids are going to go down, computers are going to be shot, the use of all the technology now. If you uh, understand or read anything about what goes on in modern weaponry, they're almost all electronic. Uh, battlefields are operated through satellites, uh, the GPS system. Battlefields are run through all kinds of computerized uh, devices. And yet, after this occurs, all of that's just wiped out. And man is restored to a somewhat uh, primitive state, and he doesn't have access to all of these more advanced forms of uh, uh, weapons of destruction. So we have this vast uh, meteor shower, and then in the midst of this, John describes something that happens in the sky. And he lacks the technical vocabulary to explain it, whether this is the result of some sort of a nuclear type of explosion that occurs uh, in the upper atmosphere or whether it has a, uh, it's generated by some natural phenomenon in the midst of this, this, these judgments. John writes that the sky was split apart like a scroll. And just as the, in the ancient world, uh, they didn't have books as we have them, they had scrolls, and just as to read that, you would open it up, roll it apart. It, he uses that image to depict what he sees in the heavens. It's as if the sky itself just splits open, and he doesn't know or doesn't say any more than that, but the, the, there is this atmospheric damage that takes place, And then in conclusion, the fifth thing that he mentions is that every mountain and island is moved out of their place. Every mountain and island. This indicates a worldwide cataclysm, a shift that occurs on the Earth's crust. And all these uh, energy plants, electrical plants, dams, all of these kinds of things that we now have to produce uh, the power that we have, the energy. We're going to have the, the worst energy crisis on Earth because when things like this happen, these dams will break. There will be enormous floods. Uh, there will be the loss of the generating plants. There will be destruction to nuclear power plants. They'll no longer be able to function. And so we see just a, a phenomenal amount of damage that must occur as a result of these judgments. But we're only in the first part of the tribulation. We're only at the sixth seal judgment. But this will be part of all of the massive destruction and loss of life that occurs during the first seal judgments. Writing about this in his commentary on Revelation, Henry Morris, who is a Ph.D. in geology, even though his field was hydraulics, that's his field is geology, Uh, Dr. Henry Morris, who's now with the Lord, states, the earth's crust, highly unstable ever since the Great Flood. That's what originally set up these cracks and fissures and various plates geologically. 
uh, highly unstable ever since the Great Flood, will be so disturbed by the impacting asteroids, the volcanic explosions, and the worldwide earthquakes that great segments of it will actually begin to slip and slide over the Earth's deep plastic mantle. He uses the word plastic to indicate how uh, maneuverable it becomes at this time. Uh, Geophysicists for many years have been fascinated with the idea of continental drift, although strong evidence has been accumulating against any such phenomenon occurring in the present age. Several have published theories of a past naturalistic catastrophism involving what they call the Earth's shifting crust. Some such phenomenon may actually be triggered under this judgment of the sixth seal, dwarfing the damage occasioned by all the mighty earthquakes of the past. So this is going to be a time of incredible devastation. But it's not, as I point out, just judgment. Although there, we see the first response described in the earth dweller's response in verses 15 and 16, and we studied this extensively the past few weeks, all the great leaders of the earth all the way down to uh, the lowest of society, everyone, uh, there are elements from every segment of society that will continue to be hardened against God. Even with all of these tremendous supernatural demonstrations, they will continue to reject God, just as we saw Pharaoh did with the judgments in Exodus, just as we have seen so many down through history, no matter what evidence they see empirically of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, they continue to reject him. And so many at the time of Christ saw him change the water into wine, saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, saw him in resurrection body, and yet they refuse to believe it. And this points out that the real issue is not intellectual. The real issue is not empirical evidence. The issue is volition. And those who choose to reject God will continue to harden themselves no matter what God does to call them back and to remind them of who he is. And so we read of their response in verse 16. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. That's God the Father. And from the wrath of the Lamb. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as a side note, this indicates that the wrath of God begins in the early part of the tribulation period, and it covers the entire period uh, and there is a view out there that the wrath of God is only the last part of the tribulation. That's called the pre-wrath rapture view, but that does not hold water exegetically. What we see here is that the wrath of God, a term for his justice and the execution of his justice in history, extends throughout the entire tribulation period. And so they will call upon the rocks, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, from his justice, for the great day of their wrath has come, and then the question, who is able to stand? This chapter ends with that question, and it is answered in the seventh chapter. For in the seventh chapter, the first thing we see is that God is going to call out 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will be sealed and protected from any destruction or death or persecution or martyrdom throughout the entire seven-year period.
period of the tribulation. That is the grace of God. Chapter 7 will also tell us about the vast number of martyrs that are in heaven, and that is the grace of God. And the grace of God always functions in the midst of judgment. The prophet Jeremiah focuses our attention on that in his uh, meditation on God's faithfulness in Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah was a witness of God's judgment and destruction on Israel, on the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and this is his reflection on that. Even as he looks upon the destruction of the nation, he's reminded of the word of God. He says, Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. In other words, it drives him to a submission to God's authority. This I recall to mind, the remembrance of what he has learned from the word of God. And therefore, I have hope. Hope in the Bible is not wishful optimism. It is the conviction of something happening, the certainty that something will take place. It is a positive conviction. Therefore, I have confidence of what will take place. See, this is the view we should have whenever we see anything negative or any judgment coming. Uh, We focus on God's word, the only thing that gives us stability. The Lord's loving kindnesses, his chesed, his eternal covenant faithfulness, never cease. Things may change. Circumstances may change. We may lose what we have. We may suffer uh, through all kinds of physical maladies. We may be imprisoned. Many things may happen, but God's faithfulness never changes. For his compassions never fail. That's the outworking of his mercy in our lives. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And then Jeremiah concludes saying, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. This is the thinking of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who understands his salvation. We have nothing to fear in life. We have nothing to fear from the shifting events in politics. We have nothing to fear in terms of military disasters or economic disasters. We have nothing to fear whether these things that affect us are just related to our own lives or they're related to others because we can rest upon the eternal rock of our salvation and we are confident of his deliverance, and that no matter what happens, he is the one who can save us. As Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And we see in Revelation, in the midst of the tribulation, that even though there is tremendous judgment from God, there's also the extension of his grace and the continual offer of salvation. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we are reminded that your faithfulness is consistent. You never change. You have loved us in such a way that you sent your Son, the only begotten second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, this offer is for every single human being. This offer is for any person who's here this morning who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, never realized that they have a certainty, a conviction of their eternal salvation, 
knowledge that their destiny at death is to be face-to-face with you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. All you need to do is to believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You don't need to pray a specific prayer. You don't need to join a church. You don't need to uh, do any of the other human factors that are often confused at the point of salvation. The instant you trust in Christ, God the Father and his omniscience knows that you are believing in him. And at that instant, God gives to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He imputes that to your account, declares you justified forever, gives you eternal life, and you are given uh, a new life, a new spirit. You are regenerate, born again, and this can never be reversed. Father, we're thankful for what we have learned today, that we as believers might be challenged to recognize that your uh, justice is always enacted in history, and even though it may not come upon our time schedule, that it will come in your perfect time frame. Father, we pray now that as we reflect upon these things throughout this week, that we will be reminded of your greatness and of your faithfulness and of the fact that you are the one who gives stability to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.